announcements for you, and welcome to those of you who are joining us online. Uh, you're on Facebook, you're on YouTube, you can like, share, uh, subscribe, get the notification bell, all of that stuff. Use the comment section uh, to participate. And um, a couple of announcements. Wednesday nights, we have started our new uh, Bible study uh, on the subject of fire on the mountain and uh, had some new folks on on Wednesday night and this is a shot uh, on location in the Holy Land and they're going through some Old Testament stories there trying to show how even back then the children of Israel had to call on their lives to make God known to a lost world and so on. So it's Zoom. It's one hour from 7 to 8. All of you, I think I know in this room, and you should all have the link by now. But uh, if you don't, come and see me, and I will give you that link. There's no password required. Uh, remember, we're on Facebook, YouTube, and audio is on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Podbean. It sounds so cool to say that. I mean, 10 years ago, I wouldn't have said that, right? None of us would, but now we're on all these platforms and you can watch us online on our website as well. Uh, today, we're gonna continue to take up special offerings for both the earthquake in Haiti and uh, the uh, people of Afghanistan who have migrated or are trying to get into Turkey. And Turkey is not that friendly to them, actually. Uh, but many of them are trying to get over there. They have to cross over Iran, I think it is, to get to Turkey. Some of them are doing it by foot. And it is quite something. When they arrive in Turkey, they're not really that welcome there because Turkey already has 300,000, I think, refugees from both Syria and Afghanistan. And they're not exactly welcoming people who are coming from Afghanistan. Now it's quite difficult. So we're working with Erdo in uh, Turkey. We're working with Erdo in uh, Haiti. And it's really basic stuff that we're giving in both cases, food, water, essentials over in Turkey. These refugees have nothing, nothing, nothing except the clothes on their backs. They don't have diapers for the kids. They don't have soap. They don't have anything. And they're not in easy circumstances even over there in Turkey. So you can designate something on an envelope. Uh, you can do so online. Those of you who are watching, you can do it online as well. Just put a note if you're doing it by e-transfer or by PayPal. Put a note in the note section as to what it's for. We have a volunteer who has envelopes for you. If you want to give in person, raise your hand. Elaine, you're there. You have the envelopes there. And Wedlin over there, she'll be at the uh, table outside if you want to give with electronics uh, using plastic, okay? But thank you so much for your generosity. The bills don't stop. Um, and so thank you for being uh, consistent in your giving today. We're continuing our series on the Psalms. This is part nine. Uh, we call it cries from the heart, which is really what the Psalms are. They are these expressions that people have about themselves, their lives, God, their frustrations, their happiness, their pain, their suffering, their desire for sometimes revenge. I mean, all these things are expressed in the Psalms and we relate to them very much because we have the same feelings and we have the same experiences, even though we're some 3,000 years after these were written, okay? So we're working our way through some of the more um, known psalms and some of the most significant psalms. And today we're going to talk about Psalm 94, God the Avenger. God the Avenger is the title because that's the first verse uh, of the psalm. But in order to get into this psalm and to understand it and where it's coming from, you need to have some background and some context in your head. 
Um, and I've got two things on the screen for you to help you realize this. When it comes to God, the biggest objection that people have to what's called theism uh, is on the right-hand side of your screen. So theism, we use that fancy term. Theism just means belief in a personal God. And there's plenty of theists around the world, millions into billions of theists around the world. It's a simple belief in a personal God, ne not necessarily the Christian God. Okay, we won't go that far yet, but basic theism is belief in a personal, powerful, and moral God, and that this can be intuitively discovered or gathered. So people look at the creation and they say, well, where did it all come from? Why is it so spectacularly designed? And so there's an argument that's been made for centuries now about the origin and the design of everything that we see around us. And people say it's just how can there not be some creator behind all of this and and people theists really struggle with the idea that the whole thing just popped into existence by time and by chance you know whatever amount of billions of years ago it just kind of popped into existence with nothing that made it pop all right so theists would say the origin of the cosmos and the design and the detailed design is ridiculously designed suggests some very very powerful deity brought this into being this is a basic argument of theism and we say that god is also personal because we are personal and so we make this observation we say wow we look around the world and we see these things we observe these things and you can without the bible just come to a basic kind of logical argument well that there may be really a good reason to believe in a personal and powerful and moral even god why do we say moral because all of us seem to have this innate sense of morality we all, we all have this sense of, well, somebody did something right or somebody did something wrong. And we have that sort of built-in conscience. And theists would argue that that didn't just pop into existence and it's common all the way across the globe. Even, even though people would say, well, you know, over here, what's viewed as right is viewed as wrong over here and so on and so on. But still, people have a sense of right and wrong. Even a, even a psychopath, even a sociopath has a sense of right and wrong. Just do something wrong to the psychopath and watch what happens, right? They'll, they'll feel wronged even though they're, you know, classified as whatever a psychopath or a sociopath. So we all have that. And so theism is this, this argument that, well, there, there is a God. That God is personal. That God is powerful. That God is moral. And we can do that without even the Bible. We can just intuitively figure that out. That's a basic kind of principles of theism that have been around for centuries. Now, on the other side, the biggest objection that it has been around for centuries uh, for the atheism view is that, well, hold on here. If you've got a personal and powerful and moral God then why doesn't that personal and powerful and moral God do something about the presence of moral evil and the presence of natural evil? 
Therefore, because that God does nothing, that God does not exist. So this is the biggest, biggest objection to theism. It has been for centuries. It will always be when your friend says to you, how can God exist and God be good and all-powerful when he seems to have allowed this to happen? When he seems to have allowed this to happen to me? How can I continue to believe that God is all good and all powerful? That's the atheist argument, okay? And both of them are, can be very, very compelling arguments, all right? Um, and so when you look at Psalm 94, that you have to use that as a little bit of your backdrop. These things that are, that are on your screen now, you do this without the Bible, so people can come to these conclusions and these convictions without picking up the pages of the Bible. Now, what the Bible would argue is that it isn't enough. It isn't enough for the theist to look around and observe life and observe people and observe creation and say, well, there must be a personal and powerful and moral God. That's good, but that's not enough. And it isn't enough for the atheist to say, well, you know, a personal, powerful and moral God can't exist because he doesn't, he or she or it or whatever doesn't seem to do anything about moral and natural evil. And I'll define that in a second. So you get these kinds of things without the Bible. And what the Bible would argue is that you need to have a revelation of who God is. So you don't have the ability to understand who God is on your own. You lack in wisdom, you lack in knowledge, you lack in intuition, you lack in intelligence, you lack in morality, and therefore you do not have the ability to discover and know and understand God beyond just a few rough things. And so you need God to reveal himself to you. This is the argument that the Bible presents from cover to cover, is that we just don't have the stuff to discover him. He has to present himself to us. And he does this, at least according to the Bible, in a few ways. These rough ways here, you know, you observe life, you observe creation. That's one way. Through his word, is another way, and ultimately through the person of Jesus Christ is the most significant way that God reveals himself to the world. Are you following me so far? Okay, so you sure? All right, okay. I know you feel like you're in a little bit of a classroom, but when you get to Psalm 94, you'll, you'll see what I mean. So the problem is then, what do we do with it? What do we do with this idea, especially those of us who profess to be people of faith and Christians and we believe the Bible and all these things? Can God be personal and all-powerful and completely holy, and yet you have moral and natural evil that continue to exist? This is a pretty significant problem, especially when you start experiencing moral evil and when you start experiencing natural evil, then you start to really say, well, what about God then? Where is he? What is he doing? Why is this happening? And you start to, to scramble in your beliefs because of this. And there are examples all over the place of moral and natural evil. On the left-hand side of your screen, 
is uh, the famous, famous picture of the, the remnant, the little leftover of the Twin Towers. It looks so small on your screen. It's, it's massive. And yesterday was, of course, the, the uh, commemoration, if I can use that term, of the terrorist attacks that took place on the 11th of September 2001. I think there may be a few of you, maybe a handful, who weren't even alive at the time, but most of you were. Most of you can say where you were when you saw it on television, wherever you were sitting, wherever you were standing, and what it did and what, how it changed your perception of life when you saw this moral evil take place right in front of your eyes on television for the whole world to stare at in horror. And uh, maybe like some of you, I watched the, uh, the events that took place yesterday uh, on and off and as they read through the near 3,000 names of people who lost their lives from Ground Zero in New York City and uh, uh, Washington, D.C. and the Pentagon and Shanksville, Pennsylvania, where the flight uh, went down that was intended most likely for the White House. And they read all of these names, and it was extremely moving and uh, very emotional because for these people who lost their loved ones, it's like it was yesterday. I don't know if you watched, and they would, they would read a series of names, and every person who was reading a name had lost a loved one. And so they would finish their section saying, and my son so-and-so, and my father so-and-so, and my uncle so-and-so. And they would give a little brief statement about that person. And it was as if it happened yesterday. And it didn't matter to, the, to those people expressing their grief that uh, it happened 20 years ago. It didn't matter to those people expressing their anger that Osama bin Laden was, was killed. It didn't matter that the U.S. spent 20 years in Afghanistan in what seems to have been a war that, oh boy, seems to have been lost, uh, at least if you listen to the news. You know, you've got 20 years later, and boom, the Taliban are back in control, and they've taken over extremely quickly, and it's like, wow, we're back to 20 years ago. So for these people who lost their loved ones, all of those things didn't matter because there's that sense of loss, that sense of grief, that sense of anger, that sense of injustice, and it is as fresh as if it happened yesterday. That's an example of moral evil. And on the right-hand side of your screen, you, we have an example of what you can call natural evil. And that's when nature starts attacking you, when nature starts to be your enemy. And there's things that happen in nature that are destructive. And there you see right there uh, in living color, SARS-CoV-2 uh, uh, multiplying inside of a body. Those little orange cells there, if you were to zoom in really, really close to them, you'd see those little, those little spikes on the end of them. That's the, that's the virus, and it's boom, 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 trying to take over someone's body, and that's natural evil. And it's all around the world. The pandemic, is, that's why you call it a pandemic. It is everywhere. Uh, I need to just, just say, as I've said uh, before, I am positive about vaccines. 
I'm pro-vaccine, all right? Maybe some of you, you have questions, doubts. Maybe some of you are opposed to the vaccine. I'm just telling you publicly I am pro the vaccine uh, because in my view, having grown up in a science background, all these vaccines are doing is admitting that God has designed the body with an immune system. They're admitting that. That's why they spend trillions of dollars designing these things because they're banking on the idea that every single person who's relatively healthy has this amazing, amazing immune system that's designed in, into them. And granted, some people say, well, we don't know how it got there. Maybe it evolved over billions of years or whatever. But there's an admission that everybody who's relatively healthy has got this incredible built-in immune system. And all these, these vaccines do, whatever the vaccine is, the same technology or the same uh, process is there. Technology changes, gets better use cool things like mRNA and all that. But the principle is that you trick the immune system into thinking that it has the virus when it doesn't have it and you trick it and it, the, the body goes oh there's something in here that I need to fight off and kill and destroy there is a natural evil in my body and my immune system needs to wake up and figure out how to fight it you see and when you have a vaccine your immune system can do that without the virus trying to take over at the same time uh, some people say, well, why do I need the vaccine if my body is going to do it for me anyway? Because that virus over there is trying to take over your body while your body is trying to figure out what to do. And sometimes it takes over too quickly, and sometimes your body reacts and overreacts, and your body will end up killing you, or the virus will end up turning your lungs into Swiss cheese, and you end up on a ventilator. I have a twin brother who works in the emergency at the Lakeshore Hospital, and he can tell you uh, that it's a, it's a real thing, and it will take over your body if your body doesn't know what to do with it. That's what a vaccine is. It's a way of fighting this natural evil. Moral evil and natural evil are everywhere. In the Bible, we see the same thing. Curiously enough, uh, in Luke chapter 13, it's only in Luke's gospel, this little... Um, uh, dialogue from Jesus, and this is sort of the news of the day uh, that they're coming to Jesus with, and they're asking Jesus uh, questions about. It is a fascinating passage of Scripture that's worth a sermon all on its own, but it says there that there were some present at that time, and they come to Jesus, and they're going to tell Jesus about the news of the day, and they're going to ask him questions. And they tell Jesus about the Galileans, uh, Jesus, uh, the followers of Jesus were Galileans from the province of Galilee. And there was something that happened in the news, quite violent, quite gross. Uh, there were Galileans who apparently were killed and their blood, Pontius Pilate, the Roman prefect, he mixed it with their sacrifices. Woof, that is really violent, gory story. And they come to Jesus and they say, hey, Jesus, did you hear what happened? Did you hear about the Galileans and what Pilate did to them? Uh, that's, that's moral evil, Jesus. And Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than other Galileans because they suffered this way? So he, he's playing on their assumption that, well, they must have done something really, really bad. 
in order to have suffered in such a way. And Jesus is challenging that. He says, well, do you think that they were somehow worse than other people because they suffered this way? And he says, I tell you, no, no. But unless you repent, you too will perish. So there seems to be something that's going to happen irrespective of, well, you know, their conditions produce this suffering. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. Unless you repent, you too will suffer the same ultimate fate as them. Wow, that's a curious view. And he says, unless, uh, or, or those 18 who died, this is another news report that Jesus brings up, those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them. Apparently there was a tower that fell and killed 18 people. It's the news of the day. He says, do you think they were more guilty than the others who are living in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will perish. It's moral evil. It's natural evil. It's present in our day. It's present in Jesus' day. We talked about donating to the people who are suffering in Haiti due to the earthquake, the people who are trying to run uh, from Afghanistan and trying to get into Turkey. Well, there you have the same thing. You have natural evil in that earthquake. You have moral evil in what's going on in Afghanistan. So it's everywhere all the time. So how then can God be all-powerful, all-good, all-holy, and yet he seems apparently to do nothing about evil. He seems to do nothing about injustice. I mean, last week we learned in Psalm 91 that God is with us in our time of trouble. And you may well come to that conclusion reading that psalm, but then you get to the question, you say, ah, yes, but what does God do about it? It's one thing for him to be with us, but what does he do about this problem? How do we vindicate God's character and God's nature when we have the presence of injustice and evil everywhere and we all have this inward cry this inward desire for justice we all have it is vivid yesterday in the ceremonies uh, it, that took place in the united states there is still a desire for ultimate justice there's an anger there is a a disturbance in people's hearts that will never never at least in this life be ultimately satisfied because their loved ones were taken from them taken from them in in a terrible violent heinous way and so we have this cry for justice it's all over the world no matter even no matter what a person's worldview is do something wrong to them and you will see that they want justice it's everywhere go to a prison they have their own weird sense of justice even in a prison everywhere you go people have it even over in afghanistan where you have these barbarians in charge they still go and do something to them and they will they will want that sense of justice it is everywhere regardless of a person's worldview and it's even reflected like crazy in the cultural fantasy of the day we fantasize about justice around the world we dream of it and we fantasize it about it the biggest most successful movie of all time worldwide is called what 
the Avengers. What do they do? They avenge. They bring justice. And we fantasize culturally about justice through these characters on the screen. And we shell out billions of dollars. I mean, that one movie made like $2.8 billion worldwide. I think the Marvel franchise is the highest grossing franchise worldwide. Everywhere, it's around the world, this thing, because people have that sense of somebody has to defend, somebody has to pay back, somebody has to bring justice, and we live it out through the, this kind of escapist fantasy in these movies. So the question is, is there an Avenger? Is there someone who's going to bring justice? And what do we do with God's character and God's nature? Well, this is where Psalm 94 comes into play. We need God to reveal himself to us and to explain to us who he is and what his character and his nature are really like because we're kind of in a fog. We can ascertain some things. We can intuitively get to a certain place, but we have all these roadblocks. We have moral roadblocks because of our own sin and our own foolishness and our own stupidity. We have intellectual roadblocks because we're not smart enough, we're not wise enough. And so we need God to reveal himself to us. And that's what he does here. Psalm 94, verse 1. O Lord, the God who avenges, cries out uh, the writer here. O God who avenges, shine forth, rise up, O judge of the earth, and pay back to the proud what they deserve. It's 3,000 years ago, and he is crying out for God to be the avenger and for God to be the one who meets out justice. Uh, in, the, in the Old Testament, God says, it is mine to avenge. I will repay. Paul quotes this to the Romans, and he tells them, don't retaliate against evil people. Remember what God said. It is mine to avenge. I will repay. God must do something about evil. He has to. If he doesn't do anything about evil, then we have a legitimate charge against his character and against his nature. The argument that he doesn't exist is a really, when you inspect it, it's a weak argument. Because nobody in it, it, throughout the history of theism, at least credible theism, has argued you know, that God exists because he does good things to people who follow him. So, you know, God exists because those who call upon his name never have any trouble in life. And therefore, God exists because these other people who don't call upon God, they have terrible things that happen to them. And therefore, God exists because good things happen to good people who worship this certain God. That has never been an argument for the existence of God. Why then do people say, well, because bad things happen and because evil happens, therefore, God does not exist? It's not based on the circumstance. It's based on whether or not God, does he exist or doesn't he? 
we'll deal with the problem of moral evil later. Do you understand? So we can have an, a legitimate charge against God. We can have a legitimate attack against his character and against his nature if he does nothing about evil. That's true. But it's pretty shallow and pretty weak and pretty unfair to say, well, he flat out doesn't exist because these things do exist. So what does the psalmist say? How long will the wicked, O Lord, how long will the wicked be jubilant? Seems to him that the wicked, the immoral, the evil people who he's seen, experienced, watched, they seem to be jubilant. They seem to have joy in their life. They seem to be happy. And he says, that's not fair. How long is that going to continue, God? What are you going to do about this, God? They pour out arrogant words. All these people who do evil are filled with boasting. They're proud. They crush your people, Lord, using the, using the personal name of God there. They oppress your inheritance. They slay the widow and the alien the person who comes into uh, uh, Israel who's not a Jew per se. They slay the widow. They slay the alien. They murder the fatherless. What a picture here. And they seem to be getting away with it. They say the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob pays no heed. He doesn't do anything about it, and it continues to persist. So God, rise up and avenge and bring your justice. This is what he's crying out for. You say, well, I'm a little uncomfortable with that. I like God being love and peace and all of those things. And that's good that you like that. But implied in the fact that God is love and peace is that God has a sense of morality. And if God has a sense of morality, what's God going to do about immorality? What's he going to do about sin? What's he going to do about evil? He has to do something. And this is what the psalmist wants. Take heed, you senseless ones. He's talking to the evil, to the immoral. Now, and he says, take heed, you senseless ones among the people, you fools. When will you become wise? Does he who implanted the ear not hear? So you think he doesn't hear what you're doing. You think he doesn't see what you're doing. Does he who formed the eye not see? So in the psalmist's mind, ah, God does hear. God does see. Does he who disciplines nations not punish? Does he who teaches man lack knowledge? The Lord knows the thoughts of man and he knows that they are futile, which Paul actually quotes to the Corinthians there. So what is he saying? He's saying God does hear, God does see, and God does discipline. Present tense, does he who disciplines not punish? Wow, so God does something in this life? God disciplines in this life? Well, how does he do that? And some of you, you've experienced that already. And you know how God does that. Because you know that consequences follow your actions. 
you know that when you behave in a certain way, there's going to be a series of consequences that are ultimately going to come. You run enough red lights and you're going to get caught. You don't pay enough parking tickets and you're going to get a little yellow boot on your car. You know, you, you learn over time that there are consequences to your actions. Good actions tend to lead to good consequences and bad ones tend to lead to bad consequences. Just ask David, right? We looked at David and David's miserable choices that led in his particular case to horrendous consequences. So he's arguing here that God does discipline. And by the way, don't confuse that with karma. Okay, I hear karma is tossed around that term in even in Christian settings, but certainly in the Western world, we use the term karma and we see something bad happens to a person who says, ah, the karma caught up with him. You see, he must have done something and karma got him. Karma comes from uh, uh, Eastern religious view and it means different things in different Eastern religions. But in Hinduism in particular, Karma, it has to do with your actions and your behavior, yes, but those actions and that behavior will ultimately lead to a certain kind of reincarnation. So bad actions will lead to a reincarnation where your soul will be reincarnated, you know, an animal on the lower end of the food chain. And good actions will lead to, you know, a higher existence and so on. Probably people who say, well, karma got you don't think that that's what karma is. Uh, the Bible would have a term about this uh, sowing and reaping. So you sow seed into the ground and you reap the harvest. So if you sow bad seed into the ground, you're going to get a bad harvest. If you sow good seed into the ground, you're going to get a good harvest and you reap what you sow. This is consequence, and we see in the scripture that God does discipline and God does judge even in this present world. Sometimes we're not always happy with the consequences and with the judgment, and we want more, but God does, even in this life, mete out consequences in his own way. There is this kind of principle of sowing and reaping that we all live with. Blessed is the man you discipline, O Lord, the man you teach from your law. The author of Hebrews uh, quoting from the Proverbs says that the, the person that God disciplines, he loves. And he says, what, what father, when they love their child, do they not discipline their child? Well, of course they do. How much more then would God, who loves you, also discipline you? You grant him relief from days of trouble till a pit is dug for the wicked. So it seems to the psalmist then that even now God is at work in the present. Sometimes it takes a really long time, too long for us. Uh, but God is at work in the present, and he judges and he disciplines, for the Lord will not reject his people. He will never forsake his inheritance. Judgment will, future judgment will again be founded on righteousness. He seems to, this psalmist, have hope not only for the present work of God, but also the future work of God and all the upright in heart will, future, follow it. Who will rise up for me against the wicked? 
Who will take a stand for me against evildoers? Who will be my avenger is what he's saying there. Unless the Lord had given me help, I would soon have dwelt in the silence of death. So for him, his dependency ultimately is on the Lord and on his nature as a judge and an avenger. When I said, my foot is slipping, your love, O Lord, supported me, lifted me up. This verse here, verse 19, incredibly relevant for today. When anxiety was great within me, Wow, what an anxious time we live in. When anxiety was great within me, your consolation brought joy to my soul. He says, God consoles me. God lifts me up when my foot is slipping. And he's using an image there. He's saying, you know, I'm slipping. My understanding is on kind of shaky ground. Where, where, when, how is justice going to come? And God supported me and God consoled me and God lifted me up. Why? Because he's at work today and he will be at work tomorrow. Can a corrupt throne be allied with you, one that brings uh, on misery by its decrees? Is that the way that it's going to stay, God? They band together against the righteous and condemn the innocent to death, but the Lord has become my fortress. Again, he is zeroed in on the character and the nature of God as his judge and his avenger. And my God, the rock in whom I take refuge, conclusion of the psalm, he will repay them. Future. He will repay them for their sins and destroy them for their wickedness. The Lord, our God, will destroy them. Man, that is some emotional cry and some uh, uh, incredible uh, emotional plea that he has. But he is firmly convinced not only does God do something now, but God will do something. This is why we talk about the second coming of Jesus. Our whole movement. Uh, we call the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada. This is uh, 1,200 or whatever churches across the nation uh, to say nothing of, uh, of other churches around the world that believe the same thing. Really, the foundation of Christianity has as part of its beliefs the idea that Jesus will return. The second coming. You say, how can you believe in that? Well, you better believe in that. How is God's character vindicated? It can't be. Without the coming of the Lord, there will be no ultimate justice. There will be no ultimate vengeance upon sin. This is why it is an essential to the Christian thought that Jesus Christ will return. This is why he promised it. This is why the whole New Testament is written with that in the backdrop. These people believed that Christ would come back even in their lifetime. They believed that. 
We're two millennia afterward. How much more important then, how much more foundational is it then to our thinking that the, the second coming of Christ is not just a faint hope, but a pillar on which you must stand? How many of us actually think about the second coming of Christ anymore? It's reserved for the, the freaks nowadays who talk about bizarre conspiracy theories and vaccines filled with the mark of the beast and this other nonsense. Folks, that's not why we believe the second coming. We believe the second coming of Christ because he will bring justice, because this psalm will be fulfilled when Jesus returns. And he will bring about the conclusion of it. He will bring about justice against evil. He will mete out ultimate consequence. In this life, he does it partially, not fully. But on the other side, he will do it fully because that's part of his nature, you see. He is an avenger and he is a judge. So to put it to you personally this morning, and maybe uh, if Sean and Viano, you want to come and just play softly in the background, and we'll end the service with this, but to, to put it to you more personally, what has happened to you in your life? What have you seen that has happened to people in their lives? What justice are you seeking what are you wanting God to step in and intervene on? Where do you need God to rise up and to be this avenger and this one who meets out consequence and justice? It is not a selfish cry. It is not a sinful cry to want that. This psalmist puts it out on paper here. And we, I think, have a right to align ourselves with this kind of, of thinking. It's not wrong to say, God, when are you going to do it? God, when are you going to settle the score? When are you going to mete out consequence ultimately? When is Jesus going to return and transform this world and bring in a conclusion and ultimate redemption and a new heaven and a new earth? When will that happen? The preaching for a uh, hundred years in the modern Pentecostal movement has been based on that, on the hope of Jesus's return, not, well, you know, it's getting further and further away. And so who cares? I'm just focused about now. Well, now, my friends, is a very, very short amount of time, relatively speaking. Do you have a kindling for the hope of Christ's return? Do you even think about it anymore? Do you realize how important it is to be meditating on the hope of Jesus' return even today? How does it apply to you? What have you experienced where you say, God, it's not over? When are you going to do it? When are you going to conclude it? When are you going to bring about your consequences? You say it is yours to avenge, yours to repay. Do you really believe that? Or are you taking things in your own hands and retaliating against people who have done things to you? Uh, God would call you to trust in him and not to retaliate. On the contrary, he would call you to forgive your enemies and those who have done things to you. Why? 
because it sets you free from that bitterness and that hatred. And it brings God into the picture as the one who is capable of bringing out justice, you see. So when this becomes part of our understanding of who God is, we can have that consolation. We can have that sense of even in my anxious moments, God has consoled me for I trusted him. Father, I pray for each person in the room today, those who are watching online, those who are going to watch, who are going to listen to recordings later. All of us, Lord, can think of things in the past. We can think of things in the present. We can only wonder what is coming in the future. But Lord, we pray that you would help us to trust in you and all of you as you have revealed yourself to us. We trust in the one who loves us and we trust in the one who is holy. We trust in the one who gives grace and mercy and we trust in the one who will bring about justice and avenge evil. We are so thankful, God, that you went to the cross to pay our sin debt, that your justice against us was poured out on your Son, that we could have a relationship with you, that we could have peace with you. No longer are we objects of wrath, but we are your children because of the grace of God, because of what Jesus has done for us. I wonder if there are any of you who are watching, who are in person, who are online, and you, 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 you realize that today. You realize that Christ died for your sins, and that in itself is an act of justice. Just surrender yourself to him freshly and say, Jesus, I come to you and surrender to you. Forgive me of my sin and my own transgression and my own moral evil and how I have slipped away from you. Forgive me and receive me that I would have a right relationship with you that I could walk and talk with you and experience your peace and your consolation in my heart so God wherever we're at we just we just uh, surrender to you and we ask God that um, above all things you would enable us to trust you more even in these difficult trying times to trust in you and to walk by faith and not by what we see, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, the Lord bless you today. I hope that uh, being together has been encouraging for you. And thank you for those of you who are joining us online as well. You're part of the whole family here. And uh, remember to pick up your kids over in number 11. If you want to give, uh, you can do so outside. We have the machine there and we will serve you there. God bless you. Have a great rest of weekend, everyone.